0: As a kid, I'd, I'd when I'd be reading some of these books, um, it was miserable. Don't know the names, don't really know what's going on, and uh, hoping to find a verse here or there that makes sense. Uh, committed to it, but just you know, brutal. And so I guess what I'd what I'd like to do is just kind of paint the scenery for you, and if you would read it in the next few days, maybe it'd it'd anchor to you as to, you know, the value of it. Um, It's the last book written in the Old Testament. It was written roughly 400 years before Christ. Um, It was at a dark time in Israel's history, and it was going to be even darker because there was no true prophetic word from that season. Malachi was the last of the Old Testament prophets so there's no real word of the Lord coming across to the nation for that next 400 years. Politically, it's a shambles. Uh, they're overrun by different nations. You know, after this, you're going to have the Greeks marching through and then the Romans. And, and yet, in this particular book, they had already been through significant trauma. You know, they'd had uh, their kingdom going strong during the time of David, Um, and then over the next few hundred years, it started to deteriorate. And so by the time you get to this, they've already been hauled into captivity. Remember, they spent 70 years there, and then were brought back, and you have books like Ezra, Nehemiah, uh, where there's a rebuilding of the temple, the the, uh, rebuilding of the walls, And there's a certain despair because it is not the beautiful city. It's not the grand place that it once was. It's during this season that Malachi writes. He's a contemporary of Nehemiah, or that's what the commentators say. And so in this season, they're not necessarily marching forward as a nation. They're more in that survival mode. And there are things taking place where... There's a cloudiness even among their religion. Uh, if you remember, when they were hauled off into captivity, one of the, the roles of, of the conquerors was to pull a batch of, and, and elite people out of that region, leave the poorest of the poor, and then move others in that had never lived there so there'd be an in, intermingling of the cultures, and it was a very intentional thing to, to cause a culture to die. You know, it was like, we'll put to death this identity so that they can't resurrect themselves. And so in this, God is speaking to his people. In spite of this, he's speaking to them. And the first portion is one that it's easy to get distracted because it says, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. And you're going, what? How can God do that? Uh, I just I want to make a couple notes in this section, because it, the history of Jacob and Esau, um, it's a centuries-old thing, and actually, the country right next to Israel, of, the country of Edom, were the descendants of Esau. And that's really what this passage, this particular portion is about, and God's making a declaration over Israel. He's saying, I love you. I'm not happy with Esau, but I love you. Now, it's not about what they've done or the good that's, that they... God just says, I've chosen you as my people, and I love you. And so he's making that declaration in spite of what they see around them. And so as we walk through this, um, it, this history of the two nations goes a long ways back. Remember Jacob and Esau fought even in the womb, Isaac's sons. uh, The prophecy is made over Jacob, who's a deceiver and a liar and the younger brother, but he gets the blessing. Esau is told, well, you're going to throw off this, but you're a warrior, a wild man. And his nation that comes from are basically a wild people. And have lived that way for hundreds of years already. So when it, when it comes time to, for this particular thing, there are some prophets that have been writing about Edom and just going, "You've done wrong. Prophet Obadiah, a few hundred years previous, the whole chapter, <laughs> the whole book, one chapter, um, talks about Edom and just saying, "You aren't going to survive." You, you've done some very wrong things, uh, you know. He says, you know, you you struck down your relatives. You were cruel to them. You went through their towns, sneering at them and stealing whatever was left. In their time of torment, you amb- ambushed the refugees. You handed them over to their attackers. There's stories told of them waiting at the crossroads of the streams and just striking down any of the weak. And so this is, this is family, so to speak, or relatives. But they've lived in opposition for years. Uh, David was known for striking down 18,000 of the Edomites. So it, it had gone both ways for a long, long, long time. Ezekiel, uh, Jeremiah writes in Lamentations about Edom's downfall. Ezekiel makes this comment. He says, you watched over in the day of disaster as they were wiped out. You, in other words, you enjoyed it. In that same book, later on, it says, your land will lie in ruins forever. And so even though it hasn't happened in the moment of this writing, and it hasn't even happened in the time of Malachi, there's prophecies going out and saying, your land is going to be destroyed, never to be rebuilt. How many of you have seen pictures of Petra? Have you ever seen pictures of that place? It's a kind of a rocky enclave where it's, they've carved, the, at one point they had carved a city out of rock, and there's deep ravines, narrow ravines, and to, to get to it, you'd have to go through these ravines. It was, it was a place that could be defended very easily. Because it was just virtually impregnable. And they built this place. Even today, Petra is uninhabited. So in 300 AD, when it was destroyed, it never got rebuilt. So the prophecies are going out against Edom. Israel, who's come back, but they've, it's messed up. God is saying, I love you, and I'm going to provide. Now, what's intriguing to me about this book is that in this first chapter, he says, I love you, and then he gets into it, but you got to know this, and so it's it's like the parent that goes, I love you, but you're getting a spanking, (laughs) the way you behaved, you know, I, I love you, but you're going in timeout, I love you, but you fill in the blank, but it's like this, Overarching, yes, you're loved, but you're getting it because you've been bad. And in some ways, that's how this book is written. There's a warning coming out and a declaration made that uh, you've let some things go here and that's not good. But the overarching thing is God makes several declarations about himself. He says, I love you. He goes on to say, I will be great beyond the borders of Israel. In other words, I have authority over Edom. I have authority over the nations. It's not just little God. It's not just, you know, as if, you know, I know he loves us, but he can barely keep track of our nation. You know, it's not going good. No, it's, it's bigger than that. And he's, he's saying, your understanding's small. But he says, I will be found great. So in this, this first chapter, he says, a son honors his father, a servant his master. If I'm a father, where is my honor? If I'm a master, where is my fear? He says, "Oh priest, you despise my name, but you say, how have we despised you? He says, by offering polluted food at my altar. Um, as it's gone on, he, he addresses a priest several times in this book, and he's saying, you're the religious leaders. You need to hold a standard of excellence. He says, when you accept sacrifices are from people that are our seconds. He says, that's not good. That's not honoring of me. You know, he's making a declaration saying there's a necessity of giving our best unto God. If he's truly a great God, what are we doing giving him the junk or the leftovers? Is that really honoring? He's just going, no, that doesn't work. So um, he says, I wish you'd just shut the doors. You know, this is this is miserable. Have you ever been praying, you know, where <laughs> there have been times where I, 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 I would have a list, and religiously for months I'd be praying this list. And for a while it worked, but after a while I'd get to a place where I'm going, man, this is boring. I hate this. <laughs> and it was like the Lord would say, you think it's boring. <laughs> you know, What's it like listening to somebody that's unengaged? You know, what what joy is that? You know, so in this, it's like God's going, you're bringing junk to me, and you're asking me to be happy and, and thrilled over this? I don't think so. You don't accept that in normal life. Why would you accept that in relationship to me? He says, from the rising of the sun to the setting of my name, my name will be great among the nations. says, there will be incense offered in my name and a pure offering. So he's just making a declaration. He says, I, I'm worthy of this, and it's going to be. The challenge for us is, are we going to get on board? And are we going to live with a, a, an a, obedience and a faithfulness? I guess what has stirred my heart as I've read this is that unbelief comes out in different forms, but part of that is kind of a backing away and just going through the motions and a loss of fervency that allows us to just, uh, you know, do the thing but not really engage. And, and he's challenging them, and he's going, you know, you, you're just going through the motions, but it's not, it's not connecting. You know, why bother? And so there are times when we have to evaluate our own lives and going. Is this just a matter of going through the motions, or am I truly engaging in what the Lord has? Because if if it's just a, a going through the motions, it's worthless. But it's also a, a sign of the unbelief that's a part of our own hearts. He goes on. He says, "You you're acting like there's a weariness over this whole thing." You know, he, he's going. Cursed be the cheat who has something good to give and doesn't give it. He says, I'm a great king. So God comes back and says, this is just wrong. It's unacceptable. And he says, oh, priests, this command for you. You better take heart or you're going to receive a curse out of this. So in the way of leadership, he says, you have a responsibility to keep declaring and living what's right. And, you know, they can look all around them and see sorrow, right? They can look at their past and say, well, we had a great nation for God. They can look at their day and just say, it's not like it used to be. We don't have anything. You know, it, it, it kind of moves into protection mode and survival. And yet it's, it's insufficient with the belief in a great and wondrous God. He, he talks about Levi. You know, he's, he's talking to the priests and their roots are with, with the, the family of Levi, of the 12 tribes. But that's intriguing to me because, you know, he mentioned Jacob and Esau. Jacob's sons form the 12 tribes of Israel. When Jacob goes to pray over his sons in the, the last of the book of Genesis, regarding Levi and Simeon, He prays curses on him. He says, You've been wicked and you've been violent, and he says, You've brought shame on this family. He says, You will no longer flourish and you're just gonna, you will not have a place, so to speak. There are two tribes that never got land of their own or a great big section Simeon and Levi. Simeon was absorbed into the tribe of Judah. And it just—it's when they left Egypt, they were one of the largest tribes. By the time they got to Israel and into the land, they were one of the smallest. You, you can look at it, and for me, I'm going, yeah, a lot of those plagues and stuff that went on for the, the goofiness of their part. Simeon was right in the middle of that, and they paid the price. But during that trip. In the land of Canaan, when or the land of the, the wilderness, excuse me, when they're walking through, Levi establishes himself because at one point, his family turns against the rest of Israel and say, we will be righteous, and they actually slew their own brothers when they're living in, in vileness. And they broke off a plague that was taking place. And God promises, he says, because of Phinehas and Eliezer, you know, the... Aaron's sons, he says, and grandson, he says, I'm going to establish my priesthood in this family from now on. He, he makes a covenant with them. So, Levi, even though he is not going to receive the land because of this family curse, God finds a way of blessing them when they step forward in faithfulness. It's one of those things that intrigues me because there are times when we look and say, well, I can see some of the junk in my family, and, and, you know, it's ongoing. Well, do you want to continue it, or do you want to break it? Do you want to walk in the curse of that, or do you want to walk into a blessing by the, the, the declaration of your belief? There's an opportunity for us in, in, in each generation, and it doesn't really matter what's taking place. God will find a way of blessing if we will give our obedience and our faithfulness unto him. The option is to choose unbelief and walk, continue in that curse. So Levi, he makes this comment. He says, I made a covenant with them. I made a covenant with you priests. He says, "The lips of a priest should guard knowledge. He says, but you've corrupted the covenant of Levi. Let's go on. There are other things taking place in chapter 2. He says, Judah's been faithless and an abomination, has been committed in Israel. It says, for Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. Now, we had mentioned uh, um, people being brought in and an intermingling of religions. Uh, Essentially, when Jesus was dealing with the Samaritans, they were a remnant of that season, you know, that intermingling of faiths. And even in this time, you know, there, there is a, a sorting out. And Malachi is saying, you can't just bring in any religion and any faith and just lump it together and say it's all good. That doesn't work. Very similar to today, right? You know, there's, a, there's an attempt to just pull all religions together and say, all you got to do is just get along, and then it's, it's all good, you know? Many ways to find God. Even in Malachi, they're walking through the same issues. And they're being told, no, it doesn't work that way. You can't just blend them. You can't just pull it together. If you want to walk through Nehemiah, you see that in more detail of what was going on this way. He says. You know, you cover the Lord's altar with tears and weeping and groaning. He no longer regards your offering or accepts it. And you're going, "Why doesn't he why doesn't he answer me?" He says, "You've been unfaithful." So, in other words, there are times when our prayers aren't being answered and we're going, "Where's God in this? Doesn't he love me anymore?" And in honesty, we we have to say I'm the one that cut it off. I've been trying to function in my sin and still call out to God and assume that his blessing's there and when it isn't, I'm kind of going why aren't why don't you care why' why aren't you why, why do you feel so distant? And the reality is we walked away now he he addresses um, even you know there's There's a breaking of covenant. There's a failure to worship with fervency or or serve wholeheartedly. But he says that even that's spilling out into the other covenants in the covenant of marriage is what he addresses in this particular portion. He says, you're leaving the wife of your youth. And then here's a a mission statement into part of our belief. And he goes... Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. And there is, a, in a sense, a vision statement given here that when you marry, when two believers marry, and they have children, they have that opportunity of developing citizens for the kingdom of God. They have an opportunity to pour their lives into those children, in a sense, pass the torch, but also develop the inhabitants of heaven. It's a powerful idea. You know, and it's sorrowful when a child wanders away. But sometimes we don't grasp how important this task is, that it's our responsibility to train that child in the ways of God, knowing that he brought our union together and he invested himself into that union, that he might have children out of that. It's a powerful idea. You know, we're going, well, I don't know if I can afford another kid. (laughs) Maybe we ought to be thinking, I wonder if I could have another kid for the kingdom. Or we go through the thing of, you know, you know, I just... (laughs) few more years and they'll be out of the house and, you know, it'll all be good. Well, you know, there's, there's more to it. And for those of you that are hoping to get married someday, you know, that dream, include this in your dreaming. A couple weeks ago, I was reminded of a dream I had a few years ago. Um, I I was sick, and I was laying in bed, and I couldn't sleep, and it was just intense. And so I'm thinking about all kinds of things, and God reminded me of a dream that I had regarding my grandson Judah. He's downstairs, so I can tell this. Um, When Heather and Trevor were living in Memphis, and there was no talk of moving back here, I had a very vivid dream one night that I was teaching Judah theology. And uh, I'm going, I, you know, I told Charbonne, I'm just going, well, that's interesting. I, I wonder, you know, maybe I'm supposed to invest in the children here. Maybe this was a, you know, a broad spectrum and dream where you just, you know, you've got to keep investing in, in the kids that are here. And lo and behold, um, within a year or two, they move up here. And I'm going, oh. You know, I I believe there was a God dream. I don't normally remember dreams, and and there was this sense of there's something in this. But you you try to sort it out, you know. Well, this last uh, couple weeks ago, laying in bed, and, and that dream comes back to me, and I'm going, I have to invest in this. I cannot just assume that I was given the dream and it will take place. That's like saying, "Well, we have kids; they'll be godly offspring." The challenge is to say, "I need to invest everything that I can to see this come to fruition." And so, what was happening to me personally? I'm going, "I got to connect with this kid, you know, and I've got to pour into his life." That's not to say I don't love over the kids or the dream was about him, you know. <laughs> So, in a literal sense, that's an investment that has to be made on my part. But when we read a passage like this, saying God wants godly offspring, there is a, a, an identifier that says, this is part of the role that we take on with children. It's our responsibility to step up and do all that we can to see that they flourish in the Lord, that there is this eternal being formed, in so that it's, in a sense, a natural flow of life that they would step into godliness and maturity in Him. And they'll, they'll have questions of, I'm not sure when I got saved. I've always kind of believed. Well, you know, but that doesn't fit our New Testament theology. You know, you confess and believe. Well, you know, it's a wondrous thing. <laughs> it goes back so far that you're not even sure when it took place. It's an awesome thing. Because there are new experiences each day, and they can, you can point to different ones, but you're just not sure when it began. Okay, so, I'm half done with my verses. I, I'm more than half done. I, that much I know. There's another issue taken on. he says, you've wearied the Lord with your words. You say, how? Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. He delights in them. Again, another one of the issues of our day. Loving God loves everyone. Everything's good with every... Do whatever you want. You know? His grace will cover everything. It's rampant in our... Society, right? You know, he, he understands me. He knows that I just have this propensity for doing this. Um, yeah, he knows you, but he provided for your change. And he's opened the door to speak to you through his spirit to guide you into all truth. So he says, who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he's like a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap. So a judgment day is being declared even here in the Old Testament. You know, it's not just Jesus saying there's a judgment coming, but the judgment day is seen by prophets of old. They're looking ahead. They're not sure of the... I mean, they see, they see things in the future. They're not sure of the sequence, or they're not even sure of when but they'd see ahead there is a judgment day coming. And it's like a refiner's fire, it's like pouring metal into a, a, a into a pot with a powerful flame and the junk coming up and being skimmed off. And he says that's that's the intensity of what's going to happen. He says for I the Lord do not change. And here's another declaration about the Lord. Remember he said he's loving He's great beyond the borders of Israel. He will be worshipped. And now he's saying, I don't change. This is who I am. He says, therefore, children of Jacob, you are not consumed. He says, return to me and I'll return to you. He says, that graciousness about him just continues to reach out. Here's what... Kurt referred to, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. He says, See if I won't open the windows of heaven for you and pour down on you a blessing till there is no more need. And and what he promises of their crops and everything else, it's like it goes beyond money. But there's just this awareness that his blessing will rest over life. He said, You've said it's vain to serve the Lord. And you said that the arrogant and the evildoers prosper. And yeah, you can look around, and, and, and in the short term, you see that. He says, But pay attention. A book of remembrance is written. Those who feared the name of the Lord, their names are written in it. In other words, he's saying, I'm keeping a record of those that pursue me, I'm keeping a record of the righteous. It's like it's being written in a book. He says, it's there. You are not forgotten. They shall be mine. They'll be my treasured possession. You shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked. Then finally, one last. says, the day is coming like a burning oven. The arrogant and evildoers will be stubble. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You should go out leaping like calves from a stall. If you ever get the chance to see that, it's one of the most amazing things. Uh, particularly in the spring when animals are released from a barn, it's just like it's like kids running on grass. For the, you know, it, it it's amazing. But he says that's that's how you're going to act. That's how some of you dance now. Uh, I'm just kidding. He says, and behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet, the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and hearts of the children to their fathers. So he prophesies that one like Elijah's coming. Remember Elijah? Prayed, didn't rain for three and a half years and prayed and it rained took on the 400 prophets of Baal, a mighty, mighty prophet. He says there was another one coming, and and Jesus refers to John the Baptist. He said that's the role he played. But the the significant is he's going to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the children to the fathers. In other words, it's almost like revisiting this godly offspring thing and saying a, a true mark of God's presence in a people is for this family to flourish where fathers love their kids and kids love their fathers. You know, it's that willing to invest and willing to to give back, you know, that, that harmony that is a potential. It's one of the marks of the presence of God within a group and on a family. And so it should not be downplayed, but rather lifted up and and acknowledged for what it is. So that's the the final prophecy that that he makes. Again, there's a 400-year gap until the coming of Jesus. So it's a, a, a very quiet season in the Lord. It's a very dark time, so to speak, for the religious people. It's a season when their unbelief is challenged by everything around them. He's calling them out and saying, do not let unbelief dictate the the measure of your life through a lack of fervency in the Lord. And do not let your unbelief cause you to break your covenants that you've made. Don't allow your unbelief to take you in in, in these places where you're just half-hearted in whatever you're doing. But rather, allow your faith to walk you through this, knowing that God is faithful and unchanging. Praise to the Lord. I'll take one more shot at this thing. I know I went after it, but in regard to godly offspring, when we talk with parents about their dreams for the kids. Oftentimes, they're going, "Well, I, you know, I hope my kid will be a teacher, or an engineer, or a doctor, or, or maybe my kid will be president." Well, you're dreaming too small. Offspring for eternity, you know, citizens of the kingdom of God forever. That's that's the thing that really counts. That's the dream that we have to hold in our hearts. May your blessing rest on these, your people. May they know the fullness of favor that you intend for their lives. May they anticipate with joy of living with you forever. Lord, as we walk through this life and as each one goes into the community, I ask that you'll give them words to speak that bring life to others. I said you'll enable them to carry out the workings of your kingdom. Gift them with the supernatural. Be lifted up and exalted our Lord, we pray. We love you this day.